Hello, good evening. Welcome to my second podcast, um, which is actually my third podcast, but um, I'm trying to get over that at the moment. I basically recorded this last night. I um, thought it was pretty good. It was 55 minutes long, which is a bit longer than I'd have liked, but I was sort of, you know, doing my usual rambling thing, going off on one, which um, is par for the course with these things anyway, so... Um, I kind of take that as given. Um, but yeah, it went slightly more off one than I would have liked. And uh, got to the end, pressed stop. The file appeared on the screen. And then it just disappeared. Went back to the um, the test, the sort of mic test screen. And then that was it, it was gone. I was not that happy. So um, anyway, decided, get over yourself, Walsh. Um, everything's an opportunity for something else i suppose that's just an obvious statement but um so i'm going to re-record this uh so this is actually my third podcast but this is the second published podcast so um the thing i'm desperately trying not to do is i'm trying not to do the same thing again because uh the thing i like about um the, the whole idea behind these things is for them to just be kind of natural and not sort of swayed in any direction and um, so I'm keen to not try and replicate the kind of order and the way that the previous um, thing went so I just want to sort of talk about uh, the practice pad and my practice pad and what the practice pad could do for you you know in a just kind of a natural way really and um, but the a good place to begin with this I suppose is to talk a bit about this practice pad that I've got in front of me, um, which I will take a picture of and I will post it as the kind of uh, the picture for the podcast so you can see a very small picture of this practice pad. Um, I did stick a, uh, a post on Instagram that was basically saying, I'm going to make a podcast about practice pads. Um, and the picture of the practice pad on the snare drum was on Instagram. So when this goes out, I will basically, I'll do the same again. I'll put the same picture up again. Um, so you can have a little visualization of what I'm talking about. Um, but yeah, this practice pad, it's been uh, an amazing practice pad. It was, um, it was bought kind of for me from my first drum teacher. And, um, a bit about the history of that. So I grew up in a little town called Glossop and um, um, it's uh, it's kind of, it's on the edge of Derbyshire. Um, it's a nice place, nice town, um, very sort of countryside-y and my family, my dad particularly, I think, decided to move uh, from Salford where all the family's kind of from, sort of area of Manchester. Uh, the other side of the air well um, he just made this decision um, to move in completely the other side of Manchester which is basically the tame side side of Manchester so going from west to east and um, yeah and I grew up in this town called Glossop and, and went to the comprehensive went to well went to the, the junior infant junior school which was on this state and then went to the comprehensive school and when I went to the comp uh, I'd been going on about drums for years since I was probably eight, eight, seven or eight years old. 
and um, you know, I was, I was also going about a bit of deep sea diver and various other nonsense things. And uh, anyway, when I went to school, a comprehensive school, um, there's a funny story um, that I could tell about that. There was um, there was a lad called John Birch who was the low. He was like the the year. Uh, he was the he was the kid that could do everything. There's always a kid in the year, and he was, but he was a nice, he was a nice guy. But he was very talented. He was, he was kind of, you know, good looking guy as well, good at sports. And one day, after a physical education PE, he was in the we we're in the dressing room getting changed. You know, you do your shower, you get changed, all that sort of stuff. Freezing cold. Um, and he had a pair of drumsticks, and he was kind of tapping them against the wall. You know. And I was like, oh, why have, you, why have you got drumsticks? You know, I was immediately interested in the drumsticks. And uh, he said, oh, I'm going to drumming club at lunchtime. And I was like, drumming club? Wow, that sounds like the best thing in the world, you know. Oh, well, do you want to come along and, and watch, me, watch me play, you know? And I was like, yeah, okay. Do you think I'm going to be able to have a go? And he was like, well, you know, you may be able to have a go, but, you know, it's, this is for people that can play, really. And I was like, yeah, okay. So, um, anyway, I went along to this drumming club thing, which was in a store cupboard in the back of the music room. So there was this, it was a hilarious scene. There was this drum kit, an old Beverly drum kit, uh, snare drum, bass drum, um, and hi-hats, and a floor tom. A right symbol, no, no, so no rack tom. And this store cupboard was was full of. There was like nine lads in there. It was insane, you know, just this crazy little room. And anyway, um, I don't know what happened. I don't remember how I, en I ended up on the drum stool. I ended up being given a pair of drumsticks and someone saying, "Play," you know. When I was like, "All right then," because. The weird thing was at that time, and this is this is absolutely true, no bullshit at all, is that I already knew how to play the drums. I don't know why. There are some theories as to why. I may do an episode on uh, on my kind of family music history, which is very small, but um, but there is some maybe genetic uh, some genetic theories. I don't know. Anyway. Uh, I knew how to play the drums, and they gave me these drumsticks, and I played quite a sophisticated groove for, you know, a 12-year-old kid that apparently had never played the drums before, which I hadn't, but I had in my head, um, and it was kind of like, it was like, you know, like a funky drummer kind of thing, it was not, no, it wasn't like an 8-beat thing. It was more sophisticated than that. It had, it had <laughs> interloping or dynamic hi-hat parts. And it had um, dynamic left-hand parts, like ghost notes and accented backbeats. So, um, and everybody in the room was kind of shocked, including... Uh, John Birch, who actually never came back to drum club after that day for some weird reason. Don't know why. Anyway, the next week, bizarrely, I ended up that the drum the, the drum kit had moved out of this back cupboard 
and it was now in the main music room with the main music teacher. I was presented to the music teacher as um, someone that was going to demonstrate uh, what I'd done the previous week, and everybody was sat around in like a circle. It was really quite strange, and um, I found the whole thing reasonably terrifying, to be honest with you. But anyway, I could play, and I went home from school that day, and, um, you know, I don't know if the school had rung my mum, I don't know what had happened, but something happened in that, you know, something happened in that time. I, I don't really remember a lot about it. But the following Christmas, my mum my and dad bought me a snare drum and a little symbol that was attached to the, the snare drum stand um, as a present, which I played the absolute crap out of for about three months until I wore the thing out. And then my dad bought me a drum kit, a Heyman drum kit, which I bought off a lad who was in the brass band, because I'd now got into the brass band as well, by the way. So I went from this sort of thing straight into the, as, a, as a junior in the brass band, playing tambourine and watching the main players in the band. Um, I used to sit there every week and, and <laughs> I used to arrogantly think I could do that better. Um, and at the times I think I probably could have done. And I did get a couple of opportunities to sit in with the band and I, and I played pretty well. But me and my mate Vince Walton, who I'll talk about a bit more in this uh, a bit later because we, we hung out a lot together. He was a, he was a good drummer and, and we I still know him a little bit. I met him recently. And, but we used to hang out together and go to his house after school, listen to loads of music, Blood, Sweat and Tears and Buddy Rich and he had a Rogers drum kit and it was cool. But uh, we were the, like the juniors in the band. He played maracas, I played tambourine, and we swapped those things around. And then we, we watched the older lads play timps retrospectively, and then the main chair was the drum kit chair. And uh, that was kind of what happened in brass band. So I got into brass band and now had a drum kit, which my dad, um, we bought off one of the, the lads, Tony Ramwell, who was in the band, who was a good drummer. And he sold us this Heyman drum kit. It was great to have that in the house. But one of the things that my mum and dad were really keen was that I had some proper lessons. Um, and proper lessons were actually um, classical lessons, like being able to learn to read, you know. And very luckily for us, my mum had heard that on the estate was this man and wife um, called Max and Irene Molin. Max is sadly no longer with us, but Irene still is uh, and still plays. Um, and I went to them for lessons. I had Max initially, and I liked Max. He was a quite eccentric character. He was a, he was a big man, very, very. Um, he was just like a like a very large man, you know, sort of man mountain kind of fellow. And he was a good snare drum player, and uh, he taught me to read, um, you know, music. So on, on doing playing snare drum pieces out of these books that we were working from. And this was all completely new to me. It was baffling. Um, but one of the things he bought for me was this practice pad. The very pad that I have in front of me now. This thing here. Uh, and, it's, uh, and it's remained ever since. I have had a, I've lived in a lot of different places um, in my adult life. I've been all over the shop. And uh, this pad has been omnipresent with me. Uh, and I've got lots of other practice pads. I'll, t I'll tell you about them in a minute. But um, this, is the, this is the original. And this I've spent more time with this piece of rubber thing that looks like a Spanish hat <coughs> than, um, 
than I probably spent with any other drum thing drum thing that I own. Maybe this ride cymbal that I've got with me as well. Maybe that. Maybe this cymbal something that's maybe been used as much because I've done a lot. I used to do a lot of gigs with this cymbal, and I still use it for practice and on. But the pad is is a place where I've uh, really spent a lot of time discovering things about drums. And this is what I wanted to really talk about in this, pod, you know, this podcast. Is kind of you know, is first of all, you know, why why do people have a practice pad? Um, there's various arguments against it, and um, all the arguments against it, I happen to fundamentally uh, agree with. Uh, but um, well, the main one is people say. And, it, and I think it's entirely true. Why would you not just practice on the thing that you actually play in music? Um, which is the thing that, you know, tonight I'm gigging. I will be taking my Yamaha um, kit with me. And my, um, I'm not taking this Craviot just now. I'm going to use a pearl snare tonight. I just bought this brass pearl snare, which I've just overhauled. It sounds very, very nice. So I'm going to use that tonight. But I'm going to take that kit and my cymbals, my Istanbul's. Um, I'm going to go and do a gig and so people quite rightly would say maybe people that don't actually drum you know, people that just have uh, just think about why you would practice on this bit of rubber as opposed to the actual kit I'm playing why would you not do all of your work on that because that's the instrument that you're playing and I, and I think that's a perfectly valid point um, sadly the reality of life um, uh, doesn't allow for that um, for most of us um, especially if you are a kind of working, what I call a working musician. So if you're a um, hobbyist and all of your time is spent, if you, you know, you've got another job, you've got another career um, and your disposable income is spent on sort of drum hobby, um, a lot of drum hobbyists I know, they have a room which they have a drum kit set up in and they play along to records and, uh, and then they may be playing a... A sort of bit of an amateur band and do pub kicks or whatever, and that's it, you know. And, and a lot of those players, they never really engage with the practice pad because they're not their kind of sole purpose is just the, the joy of drumming, you know. And uh, you know, sadly for idiots like me and uh, you know many of us who get into this thing as a kind of career. There's uh, there's a lot of hard work to do as well as enjoyment, you know, and uh, and trying to find the right balance with all that is you know is a challenge. It's a challenge for all of us. There's a lot of psychology involved in it. There's a lot of uh, kind of preparation and being organised and maybe getting some lessons and understanding how you practice and learning how to focus and all those kind of things. And uh, I initially spent a lot of time when I was kind of 13, 14, before I went to music school. And then at music school, I still spent a lot of time on this pad. Uh, but I spent a lot of time initially learning to read these snare drum pieces in my bedroom, you know, on this pad that was just kind of on, a, on my bed, you know. And it was completely silent almost, especially on the bed because there was no kind of vibration. But, you know, pads when they're normally on a... Like this I've got now on a... Snare drum on a stand. If this is upstairs above somebody's head, it can be quite irritating. 
because you don't even get the kind of um, the joy of the actual sound of the drum, which of course is extremely irritating to anybody that's not actually playing the drum. But um, yeah, I spent a lot of time on this pad, and this pad was somewhere where I discovered a lot of things about the drums that I still um, talk about and teach today. You know, they're things that have been that have been kind of omnipresent uh, within my um, within my kind of uh, understanding of how to teach the instrument, especially when it comes to the construction of or understanding how to technically achieve playing rudiments at a decent tempo. So even now in my teaching, um, I talk about kind of rudiments uh, in, um, in a way which is maybe different than some other teachers talk about rudiments. Um, and I'm going to do an, a separate episode on kind of rudiments and rudiment construction. Um, but a lot of my discoveries about playing rudiments were made on this very pad. Um, now I do have other practice pads. I have um, I have a gel pad which has zero rebound, which I which quite like playing on. I quite like using it um, using various clamps and cymbal arms. I can use it as a kind of auxiliary pad, and I I always like playing. Um, between different surfaces that are different rebound uh, properties, so it's kind of nice to um, to be able to always kind of make things happen from the hands. I always think you know it's a, it's, a, it's something that you can really experiment with on different pads. Um, and then I've got um, I've got a drumometer with, which comes with a Remo practice pad, which is a sort of semi-tunable pad. Um, it's not really tunable, it's tensionable, I should say. So you can change um, the kind of feel of the pad, essentially, because it's got um, it's got things you can tie up on the side. And inside it, it's got a, uh, it's got a little pickup, which, which basically um, links to the drumometer. And every time you hit it, 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 create, it, it, it registers a hit. So you can count your hits. And that's the great thing about the drumometer. A lot of people use it for playing fast a certain amount of hits in a short amount of time i don't tend to use it for that i tend to use it to count um, the amount of hits i've played in a certain amount of time in order to know whether i've uh, pushed a tempo enough um, so it kind of means the same thing but it, it's actually very different you know it gets people to do these one minute runs very very fast 1000 beats and all this kind of stuff and and um I have practiced those that technique and, and uh, got into the mid 900s at one time, probably about ten, maybe over ten years ago. I got nine four eight, I think I got in in, in, in sixty seconds. Um, but I was learning. I was actually learning finger control and, and rebound and trying to be very efficient with the rebound. And um, and and yeah, the drum is really good for that. But it's also good for saying, let's play. Let's put the thing on for 10 seconds and play 150 hits. So it helps you with time. So you can have a 10 second countdown to zero and then you can kind of try and play 150 beats in that, in that uh, or hits, so to speak, in that time frame. So you can do all sorts of different exercises with it. It gets you kind of thinking about seconds versus BPM, you know, and about how to relate numbers of hits to BPMs and things. Um, 
Then I've got these things called these strap-on practice pads. All sounds a bit kinky. Uh, it's not. Uh, they just they've got little Velcro straps, so you can strap them onto basically onto your onto your thigh. Or and I've got two of them, so you, sometimes you can have you know one on each one on each leg and uh, do different things. Um, and then it's a, I have a funny. A funny story about those pads, which kind of relates to this this kind of part of the of the, uh, the discussion about why one would have a practice pad. I remember I was in Matt and Fred's uh, jazz club once in Manchester many many years ago. I used to play there a lot. I used to play there three or four times a week at one time, and uh, I went through this kind of period of um, of warming up. You know, I'm a terrible warmer upper. When I drum, I don't warm up properly. I never have. Um, it's a really, you know, bad, bad habit. Uh, there's a great drummer in Manchester called Luke Flowers, who uh, I've known for a long, long time, and he's a uh, great player. And Luke was always so organised with warming up. I, I was always kind of in awe. He's always like going to his practice room before or something or other being one well, he'd always if I ever saw him and he'd been playing a gig and he hadn't been warmed up he'd be like, Oh I wasn't warmed up, I didn't feel warmed up, you know. And it was really part of a whole thing for him. And I just was so lazy that um I just kinda never got into it. And I went through a period of trying to be better at it. So I was taking these little strap on practice pads around with me. These just sit in they fit in the symbol case and the stick bag part of the symbol case. Because they're really small, they're only four inches across or something you know and uh they're quite nice pads and they're, they're not brilliant pads they're not the nicest to play but they're just something that's better than you know hitting yourself on the leg or, or some tabletop or something that's really irritating um i remember being in the uh, in matt and fred's and i just had my pizza and i sat sort of in this corner with uh with some of the people i was playing with and i was just kind of you know sat there doing some sort of whatever some sort of warm-up exercise Paradiddles or some doubles, you know, or flat taps, or you know, just kind of getting into some pointless sort of hand warming up thing. But this woman came over to me and she said, "What are you doing?" You know, and I was like, "I'm just uh, just warming up." You know, I'm like what? I was like, "I'm just I'm playing in a bit. I'm just warming up because I'm going to be playing in a bit." And she was like, "Wow, that's like..." The last thing I expected a jazz musician to be doing, you know, and it was just hilarious because I think she thought that we we're all kind of going to be, you know, down in the down in the dressing rooms chasing the dragon, you know, in some sort of opium den or something or cocaine pit. I don't know what she imagined, but I was there, and she just found the whole thing quite disturbing, you know, that that instead of like you know being in some sort of yeah some out of my head jazz musician who's sort of tripping out before getting on the stage and being in some sort of transcendental state you know i was there um sipping a cup of coffee and uh, warming up with my rudiments you know um so it's kind of funny what i think people's view people's views of what we do you know and um i'm kind of assuming that people that are listening to this if there's anybody listening to this at all um are kind of like-minded people, you know, drummers, people that are, you know, either have a practice pad or maybe think about getting a practice pad or no longer have practice pads, you know, etc., etc. So yeah, it's kind of like I think.
thing of why do you have a pad? Well, why do you have a pad? Well, I, I find it uh, it's a place where I can go to, where I get away from the distraction of the instrument. Um, there's too many things to do on the drums. Um, you know, you get on the instrument and as soon as you start hitting things, and, oh, suddenly you're off into some kind of world, you know, and it can be a place of ill discipline but great fun. Um, but also, when I'm on the kit, I do practice, you know, specific things as well. And there may be, I tend to practice more coordinational things on the drum kit. And this is something which um, you could maybe think about as a as a kind of as sort of different options. Is that the drum kit for me? The challenges on the drum kit I find that are the most uh, inhibiting in my playing. The things that hold me back the most, and it's mainly in relation to what people actually need me to do in the music that I play with them. Is that all my problems are pretty much coordinational you know i've got a pretty nice feel i've got a nice sound that i like and other people that play with me tend to like um i know quite a lot of styles uh i can get around the instrument well enough for anybody else um and the thing that holds me back a lot of the time are coordinational problems so i tend to uh, practice them on the drum kit and at the moment in my drum shed which I've not done any filming in for a long time because I've had some issues with neighbours and it's not very soundproof so it's been a bit difficult the last year and a half um, but the drum kit I've got there at the moment has mesh heads on it and they're just another form of practice pad essentially but it means I can play on the whole kit but I don't actually like sitting at the um, at the kit up there when I'm doing when I want to do what I call inverted commas pad practice um, because I find that I tend to get drawn into other areas like coordinational things or just moving around the instrument you know I've got practice thing on the cymbal so the cymbal's quiet both the toms have got the mesh heads the bass drum's got the mesh heads the, the hi-hat has a um, as this kind of sound off thing between the hi-hats, so it's quiet. Um, but I find that the, the, the practice pad is a place of sort of retreat. So it's somewhere that I feel like you go back to to consolidate. Um, and it's consolidation of, of what people could say, think of as, as technique, mm -hmm. or people could sort of say as, as an approach to rudimental playing or learning new patterns or all kinds of different things but it's basically somewhere where I go back to to kind of get away from the dis almost the distraction of the drum kit um, so yeah that's kind of it's kind of what you know what I use the practice pad for um, and then there's this thing of when and when not to spend too much time on the practice pad and um, when I'm teaching at college uh, which is in Leeds, Leeds College of Music where I teach um, I tend to try and have all the time in the room when I'm teaching, I'm teaching quite small rooms, there's also a drum kit in there but there's not two drum kits which is a bit of a shame um, my, my approach to teaching is, is I like 
the, the, the student to spend the lion's share of the time on the instrument themselves, you know. Um, I'll occasionally get up and demonstrate different things, but I, I, I don't kind of believe in that too much. I don't think it's entirely necessary. The way I teach is not kind of based around that system. It's based around different systems. And um, one of the things that I like to have on, because I always have a little desk, um, students who I teach will know, <laughs> little desk sticks on there and different things that I need on there. Um, is I like to have a pad or something that I can hit, and I basically have you know it's a place to sort of demonstrate things. So you can do sort of whatever it is, be playing something on the pad and demonstrating something on the pad, or it's somewhere that if I'm talking or they're talking, I can just be playing like very very quietly like this now, just. Uh, just being able to kind of um, have have something to keep the hands warm, and this is one of the things when you're when you're doing like my my teaching days uh, at college have always been pretty much back to back. When it used to be what um, people would call part time, there um, I used to have I used to be the only five basically five full days, you'd be like, well, it's not part-time, but it, it was part-time because it's only part of the year. Our academic year doesn't run for 52 weeks. It runs for, um, well, kind of 30, really, 28 to 30 weeks, uh, of which 20 of them are actual contact time teaching weeks. Uh, anyway, it's all very boring, but um, it, it wasn't a 52-week-a-year gig, five days a week. Now I work there full-time, and so I, my, my job split into two areas. One is managing faculty and the other one is teaching. And now I teach Mondays and Tuesdays. I teach pretty much all day. And uh, when you're sat at a desk in a drum room, you know, students are coming in and out teaching. They're all doing different things. And you're, you've got to be very, I always think you've got to be very flexible. You've really got to be thinking on your feet because, you know, I'm, I'm teaching students from year one, two, and three. So they're all at very different stages. They're all doing very different things. They're all very different players. They've all got different needs. And um, the one thing they need from me is for me to be on the money, you know. And that's not only mentally, but it's also physically, you know, as playing wise. Um, so. One thing I I just like to have a pad on the table, so I can just be just just constantly having the sticks in the hands. You know, uh, it used to be a it used to be a dream of mine when I was younger that I was going to have this thing of always having drumsticks in my hand. You know, it was an idealistic nonsense, but it was the idea that I would always have sticks. In my hands, so therefore, I would always be ready to drum. You know, this kind of thing of like being a sort of drum, drumming machine, human being. You know, just like. And um, but when you're teaching back to back, and I know, you know any of you that are listening that do teach and do that kind of teaching, you'll feel exactly the same way. The, the, the demands are you, you're ready at any time to be able to play something or demonstrate something. Or explain something either with words or with actions or a combination of both normally uh, and be able to do it you know and uh, that's why I like um, 
like pad. And this particular practice pad has been pretty much the, the one pad I've used at college on and off in all the time I've been there. And um, it's travelled with me everywhere. It's been um, omnipresent um, practice pad. You know, it's been it's been that it's been the the one practice pad that has really kind of yes uh, has been the go to. You know, it's, it's got a really nice feel for playing. It's it's not it's not too bouncy. So when you're So that's just sort of buzz, buzz rolls with left hand and then right hand with a bit of thumb pressure. And uh, it's not got too much rebound. So I get more sustain out of the drum than I would out of that. But it's not kind of got that horrible sort of non-bouncy rubber feel where everything's a bit dead and a bit dull. It's got something in it. So the pad's going to give you something if you need it but it's also uh, when I'm practicing things like just just like alternating flams like that or something where I'm actually wanting to generate the energy from the hand and, and not rely so much on rebound it's really nice for that as well it, it, it feels like it's quite neutral you know so I think that it's really important that you Find a practice pad uh, that's actually sort of inspiring to play. You know, I know a lot of these companies they really do uh, market their pads in a, in a way which is uh, you know kind of basically selling the idea that this is the real feel, this is the one, this is the thing that's going to feel closest to the drum. And um, I really encourage you to shop around and you know, try different pads. Now, the thing I really like about this pad. You'll be able to see it from the picture, but it's one of those. What it looks like, I made reference to it. It looks like a Spanish hat, and it's basically got the central kind of six inches, or it's about five inches, uh, is a is a is a thick bit of rubber, and then it kind of goes, it tapers off, and then it's a very thin bit piece of rubber that is fourteen inches, so it's it fits on a regular snare drum, and basically, it's got two surfaces so you've got the main and then you've got this so it's got these two surfaces and so when I'm playing on it I can actually kind of treat it almost like a, a drum kit it's got this little um, circle on it which used to have a label so it's here made in England and it used to have a little label there and that's long since gone. I think that fell off probably within about a week of owning it because I'm used to hit the label. Um, and the little circle I treat, I always have it at about half past one, so between one and two o'clock. Um, and it, I treat it like a, like a ride symbol, and that's the kind of sound that it makes. So I can I can think of that as a, as a, as a and then either side of it if I'm playing some sort of a, if I'm playing some sort of Ted Reed thing or I'm demonstrating that to a student I can say oh this is a high tom or this is a floor tom and that's 
you know, either side at sort of at 12 o'clock and at 3 o'clock. And then if I'm moving left, <coughs> you know, to 9 o'clock, that's the hi-hat, you know. I don't tend to play like, like that, kind of over the top of it because that's a bit inhibiting. But, but it's a really nice... Um, Really nice pad to just sort of be a little bit creative with and think about think about the space that you're in. And the thing that's really important with the pad is to know when to get away from the pad. So the thing about the thing about practice pads, um, whatever pad you get into, I tend to think I, I have a, a sort of simple belief is that I think that anybody who can play the drums, can play on any practice pad with any size of stick and tune in. Uh, and what I mean by tune in is get attuned to, you know, the weight of and the rebound of the surface. Because I think we, we're just capable of that as human beings, you know. I think that anybody's capable of it. Uh, I've got these Jeff Moore sticks, which are enormous. They're like four times the size of my normal sticks. And I use them for, uh, only ever use them on the practice pad. Um, because they're they're thick, heavy sticks. And I use them for doing certain um, rudimental practice. But if I spend twenty minutes on the drum kit with them, I I can quite honestly get to the point where I'm playing pretty normally. And this is this is the thing: we get tuned in to whatever we play on. Now. In one respect, that's a good thing because it means that we've got the ability to do that. But in another respect, it's something we have to be aware of and uh, make sure that we appreciate when we need to move away from the pad and back onto the actual instrument. The instrument that we play, the instrument that is the thing that's that we make music with other people on, the social instrument. The practice pad is the solitary instrument. It's the, it's the solace. It's the place we retreat to. You know, and uh, you know those of us uh, amongst the listeners and myself who are of the introverted nature, which I definitely have that side of my character. I always enjoyed that 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 retreat, that solace, that solitude of the practice pad. It was a place that was a, a kind of a my space. This is my time. This is um, this is genuinely something that nobody else is interested in. <laughs> Which is which is what I like about it, but there's got to be a time when you go right. It's time to get. I've got to get off this thing now. I've got to get back out into the world. Get back onto the kit. Transfer whatever I've been practicing back onto the instrument uh, for lots of different reasons. But one of them is just literally the thing of like connecting with the surface that you are playing against. You know. To the instrument, you know, we have to make a sound. We have to be able to feel emotional about when we're connecting to the instrument. Making the sound that we want to make is got to feedback to us in a positive way. If it doesn't, then it's it's hard to get beyond that. If we're um, if we don't like the sound of you know you you'd never buy a, a terrible snare drum and tune it awfully and play it and say oh, that sounds that feels and sounds great. Both those things would never be true. You know. Maybe maybe have to do that out of a situational thing, but it wouldn't be a choice, I don't think. You know, generally, I'm saying. Um, so the the thing with 
with knowing when to get off the practice pad is really important and being aware of what that is and what that means you know and, um, and some of this also ties into uh, the final question of of sort of um, specific things that one might practice on the practice pad and I'll talk about like ways of being maybe sort of creative with the practice pad if you like um, one thing I do quite a lot of the time is I um, I do some warm-up exercises if I'm going to do if I'm trying to sort of uh, tackle some technical problem I will generally have a little bit of a warm-up regime it normally involves Flam accents, triplets with a flam at the beginning. It's not a Swiss Army triplet. It's a different thing. This is an alternate. This is alternating triplets with a flam at the beginning. So you're playing right, left, right, left with a grace note. Before. And I like I like playing um, Swiss Army triplets. Uh, sorry, uh, flam accents um, with uh, pairs of flams within them moving them through there it's a really good warm-up I find that a really good warm-up and, it, and it's normally one that I warm up before I work, move on to slightly more complicated flam patterns one thing I'm sort of working on a bit at the moment which is still a bit nowhere is just playing groups of five with the flams on the first and third and then the fourth and the first the first and second the fifth and the first yeah and uh, and that's this this a really really nice exercise because um, you've got this alternating flam thing built into uh, certain variations of it, and then, and then the other ones you've got flams that are going to the same hand. <clears throat> so one of the things, uh, like one of the variations, is a. that one which is right right left left right right left left and one of the things that I practice sometimes when I'm doing uh, exercises with flams in which is something I do quite a lot um, I'll do a separate I'm going to do a separate podcast on the flam I've got a bit of a problem with the flam I, I like flams and I think flams are a very useful um, they're a very useful rudiment to understand they're a useful rhythmic happening because they tie into lots of very interesting things in uh, uh, in drums and in, in when you hear great drummers and you hear how they they have this kind of transparency in their sound I, I believe that they're using that kind of grace note approach or flam approach to, to create the illusion of um, of playing more laid back or more on top or having a more transparency in their general sound. But um, if I'm practicing say I'm practicing something like that, one thing that I try and do if I'm just sat at the pad, because I can be creative with my feet, you know, my feet are on the floor, it's a wooden floor here, there's a glass table under this, and then there's that there. alternating feet um, I 
can do this exercise where whenever I play a flam, I play the right foot. And uh, what this always tells me, these sorts of exercises, is they always communicate where I've got a coordinational problem. And then from that, I can um, create exercises that go back to drum kit and practice. Um, and there's always slight awkwardnesses within that thing where you're putting a flam within, um, if you're playing in three or four or five, it doesn't matter, uh, putting flams anywhere within those divisions, one will find tricky areas. Um, but I'm going to talk about that in another podcast anyway, the whole thing about kind of the physics of flams and how to play flams quickly and understanding the relationship between some of the rudiments and the flam. Um, but yeah, so I, that's kind of it really. I've got sort of 45 minutes. I don't really want to go on too much longer than this. Um, so I just think if you don't have a practice pad, and it's something that's intrigued you for years. I would, I would go away and uh, think about you know buying one, go to a drum shop and try a few out. Um, if you do, you know, if you do buy a practice pad, I think that one of the the best things to practice on practice pads are uh, rudiments or rudimental study, um, even just doubles and drags and five and seven and nine stroke rolls, etc. Even just some simple rudimental stuff doesn't have to be anything that's highly complicated, and um, and then if you you know if you've um, if you really you know, you're really into the pad, and um, I, a lot of students ask me, um, oh, I'm spending lots of time on the pad, you know, and I go okay, okay, you know, what, why is that? Well, I just uh, I just not getting enough time on the drum kit, so I'm just spending time on the pad as well, you know, just just to be doing something that's drummy. And so I always say, okay, we'll try and try and find some creative things to do on the pad, you know, that's um, that's more than just going through the the going through the motions of things that you can already play you know make sure that you're always practicing things even if it's in that space uh, that you can't play particularly well once you, once you've warmed up you know because um, there's no point in practicing things that you can already you know you're not really practicing them like you're just playing them because you can already play them you know practice is about you know, slow, methodical practice about analysing and understanding how something works and how you do what you do and how, you, how you're making that happen and the sound that you're trying to make. And, like, on the pad, if I'm thinking about sort of doubles and playing quietly, I might just be sort of trying to pull, like, this idea of... Um, when I was at uh, the Guildhall years and years ago, I had some snare drum lessons with a guy called David Johnson who's sadly not with us anymore but he was a, he was a great snare drum player and uh, I had various snare drum teachers um, along the way and some I got on with and some I didn't um, but David was great because he had this idea of, of this thing of of lifting accents of basically always trying to come away from the instrument so not going into the not playing physic, physically into the instrument playing away from the instrument and uh, and it was a great thing it really kind of uh, there's something about that that really um, appealed to me because a lot of the drummers that I saw 
and was watching at the time, you know, like I talked about the last podcast, a lot of these players they had this kind of way of, of getting around the instrument where it felt it, it was like they were they were they were on a journey from where they'd been. They weren't hanging around where they were, if that makes sense. You know, you've always got to be kind of getting back to what I call the home position. But if you're just your home position is here at the pad and I'm just looking at the pad and I'm playing right, right, left, left then within that, creatively, I can start to think, oh, you know, I'm going to, instead of going, like, putting the energy downwards, directing it towards the drum, I can start to actually pull the energy <coughs> out of, pull the energy out of the pad, you know, and um, that can, that can really help thinking about touch, you know. The interesting thing about David Johnson was he was also into Tai Chi, um, which kind of made sense to me, you know. There was definitely something in the way he was approaching the the the, the drum, which was more than just thinking about drum technique. He was he was thinking about other things, and um, I think that's a whole other area. I'll do another podcast about uh, not about Tai Chi, but about some interesting characters I've met along the way who have talked about those kind of uh, approaches to old martial arts or those sort of approaches to martial arts um, and have kind of helped me understand a little bit about the physics of the instrument a bit more. You know, I was at a conference a few, a couple of years ago um, through college and there was, a, there was a, a discussion there, it was a kind of holistic discussion, there was a, there was a there was a drum tutor there from, uh, I think he was Dutch, and he was getting quite irate. He, he had this kind of thing that he didn't believe that that anyone should ever discuss any of those things within a drum lesson, you know. And he was talking about specific about drum lessons because he was a drum teacher, but he was he was basically saying to everybody in the room, whatever you teach, it should just be about the instrument. And uh, I just thought, what a load of nonsense, you know. We're not disconnected physically from uh, other approaches to uh, understanding how our body works, you know, and being, like, for instance, being fitter, you know, just being a healthy human being, and things like balance, you know, fundamental balance. For drummers, it's really important. Knowing how we're grounded is really important. But, you know, there's these people, when you start talking about these things, they start going, oh, it's all getting all a bit kind of, you know, new world or whatever. And it's like, no, it's not. It's just humans. It's like it's it's like the oldest world. You know, you know, in Eastern philosophy, you know, this stuff's been around for thousands of years. These civilizations have been based on it. Tai Chi's been around for a long time. I don't do Tai Chi, by the way. I know a couple of people that do it very well, but I don't do it. Um, but uh, I do believe that we need to be grounded, and I believe that if you understand the physics of what's going on. Uh, in your hands, with the sticks, and with your feet being grounded. These things can be really helpful. And a great place to experiment with all that stuff is in the solace and solitude of the practice pad. Thanks for listening. Bye now.